Welcome back, everybody. Uh, welcome to session 19 of uh, uh, what are we doing? Of <laughs> Lamort Arthur. Uh, uh, tonight we get our first night who runs mad, which is great. And once again, Tristram is paving the way, uh, in a sense, paving the way, of course, but he's sort of paving the way <clears throat> for Lancelot. You could look at this in a bunch of different ways, right? You could look at the Tristan and his old, the Tristram and his old story as the story, like a warm up for Mallory, right? Um, but really, it's um, you know we're going to have uh, we're, we're almost everything that happens to Tristram we're going to be seeing later on, and it's going to be better the second time uh, when Lancelot does it. Um, uh, Tristram is kind of an amateur when it comes to running mad, I, I gotta tell you. But uh, he's a little half-hearted about it, especially at the beginning. Um, <laughs> Dolores Stroke says that medieval mental health care seems really lacking. Yeah, well, I mean, like, the shepherds do a decent job. I mean, they laugh at him and make fun of him, uh, but they feed him. Right, and he defends them, which is good, right? When Sir Dagonet comes in for a little fool on fool action, right, things get a little rough. Um but um but yeah, no, I mean uh, uh Dolor Struck actually there was the one moment of the whole segment actually, which was most um sobering, really, when you think about it in terms of uh medieval mental health care, right, is um when uh, and I might as well talk about this now because I, I didn't uh, I don't have this passage on a slide. Uh, when King Mark captures Tristram, right? So when King Mark finally finds Tristram, it doesn't recognize him, right? Of course, nobody can recognize anybody even when they're not in armor and in fact naked, right? But whatever. Anyway, so he doesn't recognize Tristram, um, but he he says to capture him, and he there's this that, that one little uh, just a few words where King Mark stresses, <clears throat> uh, hold him gently, right? So, like, they, 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 they secure him with, with cloths. Um, and I'm pretty sure that what that means is instead of with chains, which is normally what they would have done. Um, like, had he just left his, you know, his, his knights and attendants to themselves. And he said, like, you know, capture that madman and, and let's bring him back to the court. They would have, they would have brought the chains, presumably, because that's kind of what you did with mad people was lock them up and chain them up. Um, but so the, the fact that it's, you know, uh, the, uh, Mallory emphasizes that King Mark doesn't do that, uh, to Tristram, that he treats Tristram well, um, uh, and gently, uh, just the way that that's singled out again, uh, you know, dollar stroke of all of the, uh, um, of all of the 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 sort the sort of moments there. That was to me the most kind of, uh, as I say, sort of sobering one, where you kind of get a, a little indirect glimpse of like what uh, um, uh, the life, uh, you know, would have been for for uh, the the the. Uh, you know, the mentally unstable, uh, during, uh, during that time, you know, if you're not a professional knight who's sort of running mad as a hobby. Um, but anyway, um, yes, Stephen, uh, the medievals do associate mad people with superhuman strengths, uh, strength. And in fact, uh, you remember that even Renfield in Dracula in 1897 still holds that as paradigmatic, right? And I love that line in Dracula where Renfield talks himself into that, right? Uh, where he's, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> where he's uh, where he's like, you know, I, I, I know that I am insane and madmen are supposed to have superhuman strength. So I determined to use all of my strength. Um, so, yeah, that that's still held to be a truism even in the late 19th century. So. Um, so, yes, yeah, definitely there was an association uh, with superhuman strength, which, Stephen, is one of the reasons why nobody IDs him by his feats of strength, right? I mean, he's doing all of these, like, overcoming four guys, you know, with you know while he's naked and unarmed, right? Uh, and it's one of the reasons that no one's like, hey, uh, maybe this is, uh, you know... So Tristram is missing, and he could totally accomplish that. And there's this naked, crazy guy who's accomplishing these things. Nobody connects those dots because, again, it is the kind of thing that you might expect, you know, the crazy guy in the woods to do. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Corita is uh, remembering that line from uh, uh, the men of... La Mancha, where Sancho asks his wife how she knows Don Quixote is rich, and uh, the response is, I know he's rich, because when did a poor man have time to run mad? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, uh, that's it. That's exactly it. Um, anyway, okay, uh, we, we, we'll, 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 we'll get to Tristram's madness in, in full course. By the way, I, I, uh, I couldn't forbear uh, to... Uh, start with the Jane, with the, the famous Jane Austen quote, uh, run mad as often as you choose. Of course, it, it completes, uh, but do not faint. Uh, Tristram doesn't have that problem. Uh, that is a fainting problem. Um, uh, and I, I was put in, uh, I was put in mind of this uh, famous Austen quote uh, because uh, with the link between running mad and choosing, um, uh, Tristram does seem to be relatively deliberate about his uh, his his running mad, and it's also interesting that we see pretty quickly that the madness of Tristram is well, it's a thing, right? I mean, this kind of thing is a thing that happens, right? When when he runs mad. King Mark's immediate response is like, oh, yeah, just like that other guy that ran mad, right? Because his lady wouldn't have him or whatever. Um, or because he lost his lady. Um, oh, and it was, it was a pity because that guy was a good knight, but he's off running mad in the woods now because uh, he lost his lady. Um, so it's, you know, uh, like, I don't know, like call it an occupational hazard, right? If you're a knight errant, call it a lifestyle choice. It's kind of both, uh, maybe. Um but it does seem to be part of the idiom here, right? And uh, Tristram's madness, like a lot of things um, that uh, that Tristram does, um, is, a, is a little bit, I don't know, half-hearted. Um, there is a precipitating event, but normally, like, when madness takes, when a knight is driven mad, he's driven mad. I mean, it's like, it just happens. Like something bad occurs and he just snaps and runs off into the woods. Like that's, you know, again, that happens. Um, that's not how it works with Tristram, but we'll look at the build up to that a little bit more later on. Um, all right, let's get to, oh yeah, and Karina, we'll get to the dog. My favorite passage in all of today's reading. Yeah, the that Bratchet is totally the hero of this whole segment. Anyway, all right, okay. But first, uh, just a couple things I wanted to say. We had one slide left two weeks ago when we finished uh, the story of Sir Lacote Maltail, and that is uh, just this uh, denouement that tells us about what happens here at the end, right? So Sir Lancelot, you'll remember, had come and was setting everything to rights, 
you know, uh, Sir Lakot Maltail had, you know, done pretty well for himself, uh, but in the end he lost, right? That is when he was uh, uh, fighting with Sir Planorius. Uh, he ends up subsiding to the ground and succumbing to his wounds uh, and sort of lapsing into a coma in the, you know, uh, sort of uh, um, anticlimactic ending of his final fight. So he comes in like Sir Gareth and, and almost achieves what Sir Gareth, the kind of thing Sir Gareth did, except he doesn't in the end. And, and this to me is one of the really fascinating things about uh, the story of Sir Lakot Maltail, as I was suggesting last time, we get in his story, the story of not exactly an average knight, but not one of the, you know, this is, this guy is is kind of a blue-collar questing knight, you know? I mean, he's above average, I would say, but he's not one of the great heroes, and he can't do everything, and he loses pretty regularly, at least as often as he wins, but he he's scrappy and does well for himself. And it's just kind of interesting to me that Maori even includes this story, at least that he tells this story in this way, that we get this, um, you know, this this story which is like, you know, a hero for the mediocre, right? Um, and of course, an, a, another opportunity for Lancelot to show his magnanimity, right? And for him to show his generosity, um, the way that he shames the rest of the court for letting Sir Lakot Maltile get so far in over his head, right? And, and goes after him and helps him, but doesn't just rob him of glory and doesn't just belittle him or... Um, or patron. I mean, he does patronize him technically in the sense that he is his patron, but... Um, uh, but you know what I mean? Um, anyway, um, but, um, so yeah, yeah. Um, he's, uh, <laughs> anyway, it's just, it's interesting to me that we, you know, it's tempting we get so many stories of the greatest of the knights, right? I mean, we follow Tristram around a lot and he can beat almost anybody. We, 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 uh, you know, follow, um, uh, Lancelot around a lot, obviously, and there'll be a lot more of that later on. We even get, you know, when, when we don't have either of those two, we get Sir Lamorak, we get Sir Palamides, uh, right? You know, there, there's lots of people. Sir Gareth, of course, we got for a whole book, um, who are super capable knights, right? Uh, and who are almost always better than almost anybody that they're uh, facing. But that that's not the only kind of knight. That's not the only kind of character, in fact, that Mallory is interested in. And it's one of the things that we can begin in. And one of the, 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 the moments, one of the things that happens really during this middle section, and it happens kind of quietly, um, is when this story ceases to be this sort of register of heroic actions. And that we, we're getting a lot of that back in the early parts with King Arthur and King Ben and King Bors and all that kind of thing, right? Um, we're getting more than that. We're getting some much more interesting and kind of complicated characters that we kind of, as readers, rally behind, not just because they're the best of the best and, and sort of idealized, but, you know... Uh, for other and, you know, sort of different and more complicated, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, reasons. But anyway, okay. The denouement, as I was saying. And as Sir Launcelot come by the castle of Pendragon, uh, there he put Sir Brian de les Isles from his Londes. That was the bad guy who lived in that castle, of course. For because he will never be withhold with King Arthur. And all the castle of Pendragon, and all the Londes thereof, he gaffed to Sir Lakot Maltile. 
And then Sir Launcelot sent for Sir Nervius, that he had mad honest knicked, and he mad him to have all the rule of that castle and of that country under Sir Lacote Maltile. And so they rode unto King Arthur's court all whole togetherers. And at Pentecost next following, there was Sir Planorius, and Sir Lacote Maltile was called otherwise by Richt, Sir Brune Lenoir, and both they were mad connectors of the Round Table, and great Londes King Arthur gaffed them. And there Sir Brune Lenoir, which is of course Sir Lacote Maltile, wedded that damsel Maladisant, and after she was called the Lady Bio Vivant. I love her name changes. She was the damsel Maldisant, right? Evil speaking before. And then Sir Lancelot is like, ah, your real name is Biopensant, right? The the beautiful thinker. Uh, but now she's the beautiful liver, right? She's living happily ever after. And so she get she gets renamed like the lady living happily ever after. Um, but ever after, for the more party, he was called Lacote Maltile, <clears throat> and he prayed a passing noble knight and a michty, and many worshipful deeds he did after in his life. And Sir Plenorius prayed a good knight and was full of prowess, and all the dies of their life, for the most party, they awaited upon Sir Launcelot. And Sir Plenorius' brethren were ever knightes of King Arthur, and also, as the French book maketh mention, Sir Lacote Maltile revenged the death of his father. I absolutely love how that gets tossed in at the end. Just I we get we, we get exactly what six words about that. I mean the whole premise of Sir Lacote Maltile and why he has this you know evil shapen coat in the first place, right? Which Kay makes fun of and then gets shamed by uh, uh, by Sir Brune, right? Uh, when he. Uh, Anyway, it's just, it's awesome. I just love that. Oh, and P.S. He avenged his father, right? Whatever. But it's not like you were interested in hearing that. And, you know, I mean, come on, admit it. At the beginning of his story, you totally thought that's what we were like, right? You were totally waiting any moment for one of the bad guys he met, whether it was, uh, you know, Sir Brian de la Isles in the uh, castle of Pendragon or whether it was Sir Plenorius or, or whatever, like... One of the boss fights he was coming to in the end was, you know, was going to be like, you killed my father, prepared to die. Right? I mean, we were absolutely, come on, who wasn't expecting that? Um, and then not only does it never happen, but we're barely even informed. We're, I mean, just the bare fact, like, don't worry, he does get uh, vengeance. You know, he does revenge the death of his father. It's all uh, um you know, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> but we're never told. And we have, we will never learn. We will never know what happened there. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there it is. Uh, so, okay. Um, so, anyhow. Um, uh, first of all, one thing I would say. In, in in one see in in one sense this i think it, the 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 sort of remarkable fact that we never in fact 
hear the story of the vengeance of Sir Lakota Maltau, uh, which it sounds like we were being set up for at the beginning. In part, I think this is this is uh, uh, that's a Maori story. That is like it's a story about Maori's own sort of peculiar narrative choices and how he doesn't follow through on that particular and what would seem to be rather obvious kind of narrative nugget that he gives us there at the beginning. Or, you know, he does not follow that particular narrative trail that uh, he seems to uh, be pointing towards, pointing us towards at at the beginning of the story. So on the one hand, it's an idiosyncrasy of Maori's that he chooses to not go in that way and doesn't even seem to understand at the end that we might have been expecting that and could possibly be disappointed that we never uh, really got, uh, you know, followed through on that. Um, But at the same time, I also want to be careful uh, in only ascribing it to that because I think there's also, we have to remember We've had a lot of conditioning. Um, That is, we've been conditioned not just by novels, but by sort of the way that English novels have developed. Like, through Charles Dickens. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a Dickens fan or not. I mean, Dickens' influence over the genre was very significant, uh, whether you read him or not. Um, And, you know, it's like, this is... That's like the least Dickensian moment <laughs> in Sir Thomas Mallory, right? Like Dickens would never have dropped a ball like that, right? You know, like we've been trained. We've been trained that anytime something like that comes up, um, we are almost hardwired by novels um, when we see something like that at the beginning of a story to be like, okay, well, that's obviously like the whole like torn garment and like father's blood still on it and the oath of vengeance that he's taken, like this is going to be important later, right? Um, nah, no, not really so much. Um, but, uh, exactly, Dolores Stroke, if you see a gun in Act 1, it must be used by Act 3. Yeah, that's a different rule, but 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 kind of similar, right? I mean, there's a lot of ways in which modern narrative structures uh, have kind of trained us to read, right? Uh, and therefore really guided our expectations. Um, and you know, it's hard because on the one hand, I totally am willing to ch- uh, to uh, sort of put this up at least in part to Mallory's own kind of idiosyncrasies here. Um, and, and therefore, in doing that, I'm willing to say um, that, you know, it's... Uh, um, willing to say that you know, he like is a little t- is being a little tone deaf here, you know, in uh, uh, in the way that he constructed this narrative, you know, um, that it's kind of kind of sloppy in that way. But again, I want to be careful um, because um, uh, but I want to be careful uh, because that is, we we have to be careful just projecting modern expectations back on medieval works and saying, well, it doesn't didn't go the way, you know, I obviously expected it to go, and so therefore it's bad, because um, I, I think there's an element of that here too, um, 
I mean, he didn't actually promise us anywhere he was going to tell the story of the vengeance, right? I mean, you know, like, where was that written that that has to happen, you know? Um, he didn't He didn't introduce it that way. You know, if he'd promised us that story and then not delivered it, that'd be one thing. Um, yeah. Um. <laughs> Curita says we get way more uh, uh, about the indignation over the slaying of dogs than we get about the vengeance of Lakot Maltile. Yeah, that was more of a feature uh, in those earlier stories, Curita. It's true. Um, yeah. I, so anyway, I, to me, I think it's I think it's a little bit of both. I do think it's I. I mean, I find that last sentence legitimately funny. I mean, I, I think that that sentence is objectively funny to toss in at the end like that. And by the way, he revenge the death of his father. Um, uh, but, um, but at the same time, you know, I, I certainly am not at all sure that it is, uh, uh, that medieval readers in general would consider this thing a fault in the same way that we do. But anyway, um, I want to, uh, think for a second though, before we leave this about Sir Lancelot and his role. Um, because this is one of the things that we see here. We've we've talked a lot about Lancelot's uh, Lancelot's place as the uh, strongest knight in the land, right? Um, we have talked about and, and and him as the sort of standard bearer of knighthood. Remember, in the book of Sir Lancelot, we got you know, especially in those back to back adventures against Sir Tarquin, the the guy who's doing. Uh, horrible things to knights and then uh, to Paris, to Sir Paris, the knight who's doing horrible things to women, right? Um, him as the, you know, the, 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 not even adjudicator, but, you know, the enforcer of the knightly code, like, you know, the, you, it's not okay to act like this. So him as, as, as the, the clear standard bearer for these things. And then of course we spent a good deal of time talking about and have been thinking about since, and will continue to do so, about the very high moral standards that he sets for himself, especially his rather peculiar and apparently countercultural um, uh, sexual morality. So we've seen all that stuff about Lancelot, but one of the things that I think that we see here that I really want to make sure um, that I really want to make sure we don't overlook is Lancelot's political role. Right. Because there is some really um, there is some really significant political things that happen here. And I want to I want to just sort of make sure that we kind of think this through for a little bit here. Right. Um, Look at what he does in that first paragraph. Right. So they go by the castle of Pendragon, uh, you know, where Sir Lacote Maltile had, you know, one of his adventures where he, if I'm remembering correctly, that's the castle where he fought the hundred knights. Right. It's been a long time ago. I haven't read it for two weeks, so I barely remember it now. But um, but anyway, I know it was one of the places where it was run by a bad guy. Um, and Sir Lancelot wasn't there. Sir Lancelot came was like that was when Lancelot was trying to catch up with him. Right. Um, so, so Sir Lacote Maltile did that by himself. So on the way home. Sir Lancelot just ousts Sir Brian de Lisle's from his lands, right? Um, now, he's a legitimate bad guy and an open enemy of King Arthur, right? So my point is not that I think that Lancelot is, um, um, uh, is uh, uh, you know, acting 
inappropriately here in any way, is totally justified in what he does, right? So Brian's a bad guy and an enemy of King Arthur, so he boots him, right? It's the next step that I find so interesting. And again, I don't think this is, I don't, I don't get the sense, let me say up front, that we're supposed to think this is sketchy in Lancelot at all. I, this all seems to be perfectly fine. It's just interesting to me for that reason, right? Uh, because having, having kicked out Brian de Lisle's, what Lancelot does not do is then go back to the king and say, hey, uh, King Arthur, so um, I, uh, you know, uh, booted Sir Brian de la Zyles, uh, so that those lands are available now, right? I got rid of him, um, and he had quite a, a, you know, a bunch of land, right? So, you know, King Arthur, this is a big chunk of, like, your country, right? So, uh, you know, go ahead and because the king gives lands away. We see him gives, you know, he, he gives great londes, right, to both Sir Plenorius and Sir Lacote Maltile when they're made Knights of the Round Table. Uh, the giving of lands is a really important thing um, um, that the um, uh, that, that, that the king does. Because remember, it's not only that, like, you'd think, like, well, hang on, like, the lands in the kingdom kind of, you know, belong to me and not Lancelot, and so I should be the one giving them out, King Arthur might think. But remember, this, like, notice what happens. It's Lancelot that gives them, right? Lancelot gives the lands to Sir Lacote Maltau. But not just that, he sets up a feudal hierarchy under Sir Lacote Maltau, right? So he's like, okay, so I'm going to give this castle specifically to Sir Nervius. And Arthur, I agree, Sir Nervius is an awesome name. That's <laughs> really, really fun. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, okay, so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dolores Stroke was just saying he did not fill out a form BD Stroke 3-A replacement of feudal lord. Uh, yeah, exactly. But no, no, no. See, so here's the point. Sir Nervius gets the lance, right? And he is to be the vassal of Sir Lacote Maltau, right? But Sir Lacote Maltau is receiving all these lands from Sir Lancelot. So to whom does Sir Lacote Maltau owe his loyalty, feudally speaking. Who is his feudal lord? The answer is Lancelot. Lancelot is the one who gave him his lance, right? So he owes his allegiance to... It is Lancelot who can... Not King Arthur, who can call on Sir Lacote Maltau. Now, no harm, no foul, right? I mean, as Sir, Cote, Sir Lacote Maltau is going to be, you know, coming in uh, and being coming a knight of the round table anyway, so he's going to be swearing fealty to Arthur as well, so it's all good, right? And anyway, Lancelot is like, you know, the greatest knight in Arthur's court and the greatest supporter of Arthur's regime, right? So it's like, what could go wrong here, right? This is fine. It's fine. This is all, you know, Lancelot is acting kind of in the place of the king, right? Uh, in a sense. So it's all, it's all good. Notice how Maori draws attention to the fact, though, um, that, uh, where was it? Yes, and Sir Plenarius private a gold knight and was full of prowess, and all the dyes of their leaf, that is, Sir Plenarius and Sir Lacote Mautile, for the most party they are whited upon Sir Lancelot, right? They are Sir Lancelot's men, and secondarily, Arthur's men, right? This 
Yeah, Nancy says, yeah, so if Lancelot ever revolted. In the unlikely event that Sir Lancelot and King Arthur should ever be on the on opposite sides of an armed conflict, and I, let me just say up front, I find this a staggeringly unlikely development, right? But if that ever were to happen, this would create some problems, right? There could be some serious issues here if a large portion of the... And, and this is... This is one of the things that I think I myself didn't understand for a long time when reading Mallory, that because of not really thinking through the implications of what we see in a lot of this, like just brief mentions of this kind of political situation. Um, when, when later on there, you know, will be talk of strife there, you know, when the court will be divided, I think I didn't fully appreciate the magnitude of the situation, right? Because I was seeing it as... I understood it personally. And I think part of this was, you know, the bias I have as a modern person who's watched movies. You know, like, I, we've been trained as 20th century people uh, to see the Lancelot-Guinevere-Arthur triangle as a primarily personal and romantic question, right? Um, and if there, you know, if there's an issue of betrayal, the issue is one of personal betrayal, right? It's a like, oh, Lancelot, how could you do this to me, says King Arthur, right? But it's there's much, much more to it than that. Um, and we get a little glimpse here of what problems could arise. And again, and what it means... Um, Again, another thing that I think, uh, another mistake I think I often made in my early readings of Mallory, there is so much emphasis by Mallory on Lancelot's personal prowess, right? I mean, the man is a one-man wrecking crew. I mean, nobody can stand against Sir Lancelot. So, you know, when people start being concerned later in the book about, like, ooh, what would happen if Lancelot were against us, Again, I always read that as primarily a, like, dude, I don't want to face him in battle, right? Because if, you know, if he's coming against us, like, you know, if Lancelot be against us, who can stand, right? Um, again, I, I was taking that as, 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 as personally. What I wasn't thinking through is, okay, if Lancelot should be against us, like, at least half of the nobles of this land are going to be against us because they hold... With Lancelot, they hold their lands and their uh, their their loyalty to Lancelot first, and Arthur second. Anyway, okay, just wanted to, um, uh, just wanting to point this out. Yes, James Stevens points out this is similar to Beaumain's defeating knights and having them swear fealty to him and then pledging himself to Arthur. Yes, James, we have, remember the, all that emphasis about how many knights they bring with them, right? Like, was it? It was the uh, uh, the red Lan- the red knight of the red lands, right? Uh, Sir Ironsides, who brought five hundred knights, and Sir Percent of Ind brought a hundred knights with him, and his brothers each brought a smaller, com- you know, from like the thirty knights we got with the green knight. Anyway, yeah. So by the end, uh, it's 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 made very explicit, right? Sir Gareth is able to himself, in his own name, summon an army of. You know, I didn't do the math, but 
of hundreds of knights, right? He's got, you know, somewhere between six and 700 knights at his disposal. Uh, uh, just at th- those are his personal vassals. And yes, James, as you say, he pushes himself to Arthur, right? But of course, James, G- Gareth is himself an example. He doesn't earn his land. He's not given his lands by Lancelot. Um, but we can see he is very clear that his personal affiliation is to Lancelot. He does not ask Arthur to make him king or knight. He asks Lancelot to make him knight, right? Um, it's Lancelot that made him knight and uh, Lancelot. Who, so again, Sir Gareth is another example, right? So, you know, Sir Gareth, but it's not just Sir Gareth, right? Sir Gareth and his 700 knights um, are, you know, would probably be on Lancelot's side if push came to shove. Um, yeah, yeah. And Brian, you're right. We should therefore pay attention when victorious knights instruct those they defeat to present themselves at Arthur's court. Um, that would avoid some of these kinds of questions. Um, although, you know, the, the, though Brian, I would say, I would get, Lancelot might have done that, like, might have done that with Brian de la Ziles if, uh, um, if Brian had submitted, right? If Sir Brian had 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 uh, given himself up and agreed, you know, to swear loyalty, I'm sure Lancelot would not have been like, okay, swear loyalty to me so I can build my empire. That does not seem to be Lancelot's uh, goal. I think it's one of the things that we're seeing here. Again, I don't think this is... Th- we're meant to read this section and come away saying, and so Lancelot insidiously and quietly builds his empire, right? That's not what's happening here. Lancelot is just being generous. He's being a good guy. Like, this is what you do, right? It's what he does anyway. And clearly, he has the authority to do this. Arthur doesn't mind him doing this. This kind of shows us Lancelot's position, because again, it works out, right? He, Lancelot, has sworn fealty to Arthur, so everybody, just as Gareth's 700 knights, they're fine, right? Yes, they're his personal army, but since he's sworn fealty uh, to Arthur and to Lancelot, and Lancelot's sworn fealty to Arthur, it's all good. We're all on the same side. There's nothing to worry about as long as everything is still okay. Um, but anyway, just to point out that Lancelot clearly has this position. But yeah, uh, really, if you think about Sir Brian and uh, uh, Sir Plenorius, those are the two different examples, right? Sir Brian doesn't capitulate. Uh, Sir Plenorius does capitulate. Um, and so he becomes accepted. He swears fealty. He becomes a knight of the round table. Um, and he uh, um, uh, awaits upon Sir Lancelot for the most party, right? Um Whereas Sir Brian uh, 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 is put out of his lance because he won't swear fealty. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Stephen, exactly. This is kind of how the, the... Yeah, yeah. Feudalism is kind of a pyramid scheme. No questions about that. Um, and that is kind of exactly how it works. And this is one of the reasons... Um, this is a huge tangent. And I'm not going to get on it. But let me just say, modern people have a lot of misunderstandings about medieval politics. One of the mistakes they make most often is believing that a king has some kind of absolute authority over his country. Um, A lot of modern people contrasting medieval kingship with modern 
democracy or republicanism or whatever you want to call whatever it is we have. Um, anyway, by contrasting those two things, modern people often kind of sloppily think of, of medievals, uh, like medieval rulers, as absolute rulers. Medieval rulers were almost all not absolute, especially in England. Um, there were very few absolute rulers uh, in England uh, that is who were kings um, at the time. Uh, the primary, uh, the primary thing. Uh, the primary sort of political fact of life, uh, you know, at the in the upper end, right, as far as like the king is concerned, is the relationship between the king and the barons. And this is ex- this is exactly why each of the barons, each of the great lords, they are their own lord, right? They have their vassals, right? They have their own pyramid underneath them. They, by swearing fealty to the king grant the king his authority, right? If he has the, the the loyalty of all of the barons, then he's in power. No problem, right? But if some of the barons withdraw their support, right, now he's got no army, right? And he his power is really, really low. Anyway, it's... Um, it's 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 complicated again it's it's you know you, you can see this again and again uh throughout the you know throughout medieval english history especially the complicated relationship that often happens between the barons and uh uh and and the king so this was a real issue uh in the middle ages and the king is absolutely not um uh a, an absolute monarch um like people like you know what like the kind of rule that Henry VIII tried to establish, for instance, is not, he was not like the last medieval king. Like he was weird. Like that was, he, 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 he took to himself a bizarre amount of power from the point of view of medieval kingship. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, Brian was just asking about that. Is it, is it, uh, um, the attempt to assert a right to absolute rule seems more of an early modern concept. Yeah. Well, and you know, it was, French as well. Like the French monarchs were much more into the absolute rule thing. At least they were more successful in imposing the absolute rule thing uh, than really pretty much ever happened uh, in uh, uh, in England. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, but like I said, I don't. Get, I, I'm not going to go too far down this, uh, and I don't want to talk about particular historical cases. And like, so see, like Zach, I'm tempted to like follow up your reference to Magna Carta, but I'm not going to talk about Magna Carta. Uh, I just wanted to point out the political realities that are being set up here, um, and I do think that although. Maori is showing us Lancelot acting totally benevolently here. I, I don't think there is a whisper of criticism that belongs to Lancelot for his actions here at all. And yet we can begin to see the beginnings of what could in theory become a problem down the road. Um, anyway. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's, let's keep going. On to Sir Tristram. Opening paragraphs of our return to Sir Tristram. Now leave we here Sir Launcelot de Lac and Sir Lacote Maltile, and turn we unto Sir Tristram de Lyonnes, that was in Bretagne. That Juan la Belle Isode understood that he was wedded, she sent to him by her maiden, Dame Bragwine, P. 
piteous letters as could be thought and mad, and her conclusion was thus, that if it pleased Sir Tristram to come to her court and to bring with him Isode le Blanche Minas, and they should be kept all's well as herself. Than Sir Tristram called unto him Sir Cahidens, uh, that's his brother-in-law, of course, uh, Isode le Blanchemin's brother, and asked him whether he would go with him into Cornwall secretly. He answered him and said that he was ready at all times. And then he let ordain privily a little vessel, and therein they silent Sir Tristram, Sir Cahidens, and Dame Brangwina, and Governile, Sir Tristram's squire. Who's missing from this party? Hmm. So when they were in the sea, a contrarious wind blew them unto the coasts of North Wallace, nigh the forest perilous. Than sighed Sir Tristramus, Here shall ye abide me these ten dies, and Governile, my squire, with you. And if so be I come not again by that die, tuck the next way and into Cornwall. For in this forest are many strange adventures, as I have heard say, and some of them I cast to prave, or that I depart, and when I may, I shall hike me after you. All right. To who's missing? Yeah, uh, uh, his wife. Yeah. Um, um, uh, <laughs> Dora Stroke says, keep your friends close and your ex's current girlfriends closer. And that seems to be uh, Isolde's uh, uh, philosophy. Yeah, so, right, yeah. Um, he, um, Isolde, um, uh, <laughs> Isolde Leblanchemans does not make the trip with them. Uh, she does not earn an invitation from her sort of husband, um, Remember, they're only sort of married, uh, because although they did get married, she's a clean maiden, as for him, as he is ready to boast of on every occasion, So, which means they haven't actually consummated their marriage. Um, so legally speaking, they're actually only semi-married in the first place. Um, La Belle Zode invites Tristram to bring his wife to court with him. He doesn't do so. Silently doesn't do so. We get no comment on his not doing so, right? We get the invitation, and then we get Sir Tristram called unto him, his brother-in-law, right? And hey, would you want to come with me? Sure, great. And so let's bring Dame Bragwine, of course, La Belle Zode's uh, handmaiden, and my man, Governile. Um, bye, honey. And he just leaves uh, Isode Le Blanchemins at home. Um... So, there are a couple different ways in which you could read La Bellisode's invitation, right? You could read it as an act of humility and generosity on her part, right? Uh, an act of forgiveness that she's willing to extend hospitality uh, and courtesy and possibly even friendship to her rival, uh, the other Isode. Um, you could read this as something more devious, uh you know, uh, some sort of strategy to uh, separate the two of them. Like, was you know, what kind of plans did she have for Isolde LeBlanche Mines when she came over? Uh, I don't, um, I don't really know for sure. Um, 
I, I'm interested in the, the uh, um, and they should be kept all as well as herself is an interesting assurance that she gives, right? You will be kept as safe as my, uh, uh, you will be kept as well as myself, Isode, La Belle Isode tells him in her letters. As if there's a doubt about that, right? Like, you should come to the court. You absolutely should come to the court. And I promise I'm not just inviting you because I plan to, mer- to poison your tea or anything like that, right? And this is totally not going to become like one of those Medea situations. Like, you know, your new wife totally doesn't have to worry about any you know, like garment I might give her as a present. She can put any of that stuff on and she probably won't burst into flames. Um, um, eh. The assurance they should be kept all as well as herself seems to suggest that that's out there, right? That, you know, the, the, the possibility of some kind of vengeful action uh, by La Belle Zode is kind of on the table such that she feels she needs to assure him that that is not indeed her plan. Is Tristram's leaving of his wife at home connected with that? You know, I don't know about that, right? Um, I, uh, again, you could read it that way, right? Um, yeah, you could read it that way. Like, maybe, actually, I'm going to leave my wife at home because this really does not sound like a good situation. Um, Katriana says that she gets the sense that he really just didn't want anything to do with his uh, legal wife you know, uh, at this point. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, that also seems like a, a very good uh, reading. Um, I certain, I mean, it certainly sounds certainly seems like that's the case, right? That he uh, is certainly not very attached to her at this point. Um, her brother, though, he's going to take with him, right? You know, his brother-in-law, they're tight. So, okay, I'm going to take my brother-in-law, but I'm going to leave. Uh, so I'm going to take my brother-in-law with me to go visit, um, you know, my <laughs> my, my girlfriend, Uh and I'm going to leave his sister, my wife, at home. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's awkward in sort of every way. Um, but then it gets even more awkward because they set out in their boat. And then, of course, they crash, right? Now, um, on the one hand, you might think, well, goodness, come on, Maori, isn't this whole, like, shipwreck thing getting a little tired as a, as a, as a, a machine, you know, in your narrative? Right. I mean, this is the third shipwreck we've had in the last like 50 pages. Um, Two of them were Tristram, right, crossing over from Brittany. Um, But honestly, I would say uh, people who think that we've had more shipwrecks than uh, really perhaps we wanted um, probably have little experience either with the English Channel or with medieval shipbuilding <laughs> techniques. So I, this actually seems kind of plausible, actually. Uh, <laughs> both Nancy and Zach are suggesting that this really, the subtext here is that Tristram is a terrible mariner, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but... 
<laughs> Curious says she prefers to think there's a minor sea deity who has it out for Tristram. Uh, yeah, possibly, possibly. I think you're, I think you're projecting <laughs> there, Karina. But I, but understandably, um, yeah, I agree. Doris Stroke, a Arundel, he ain't. Um, but, but anyway, notice what happens after the shipwreck. So after the shipwreck, he's like, okay, so we're shipwrecked. Uh, on this coast by uh, this pleasant <laughs> tract of land called the Forest Perilous. And he's like, ooh, I hear there are lots of strange adventures in here. So I've got an idea. You guys stay here. So the two armed people, we're going to leave you all. Um, and we're going to go off in this forest, not in order to keep you safe or to scout out a way or to seek help or anything like that, just kind of recreationally. Right. Because uh, I cast me to prove some of the strange adventures here uh, since I'm in the neighborhood. Right. Um, And uh, uh, and when I may, I'll hide me after you. Right. So I'll I'll, I'll come find you, you know, like uh, down the road when I can. Right. Um, uh, So you stay here, Brongwine and Governile and uh, probably sailors if any of them survived and uh, everything will be, everything will be okay. Um, now there are a couple things that I would say about this whole passage. My subtitle, I, I called this good reasons to say, to stay single and Karita by that. I didn't mean like when you see what a jerk Sir Tristram is that you should think twice about taking a husband. What I mean is that, um, <laughs> that, this is exactly the kind of thing that Sir Lancelot was talking about. Remember, Sir Lancelot started off his whole like sexual morality pitch uh, by saying, I cast me not to be a wedded man, right? Um, on the principle that uh, if he were married, he'd have responsibilities that he'd really need to pursue. Uh, and he couldn't do like, that would not really jive with being um, you know, a knight errant, which Lancelot feels to be his calling. Right. Um, but, um, anyway, so, uh, I, I, I feel like in this passage, Sir Tristram is, gives a large number of examples like this, this, this passage right here could be taken as like a systematic illustration of, what Lancelot was talking about, what he was recommending against and why, right? Um, look, if you get married, you shouldn't leave your wife. But it's like, first of all, this whole mess with like your ex-girlfriend and your wife who has the same name for crying out love, all the creepy things. And like, are you married to her or not? Are you committed to the, to, to, to her in marriage or are you, are you staying loyal to your first love? I mean, come on, like get it together. So, so he's failing there. Right. And then he leaves her and he just goes off and leaves her again. And I'm, if I remember correctly, I don't think Tristram is ever going to see Isode LeBlanc's minds ever again. I think, I think she's done. Um, she's going to die eventually, I think, but she, but I don't think Tristram ever is going to go back to her. Um, so he's being needless in every possible way, a terrible husband. Um, the whole mess with La Belle Isode was created, you know, by this. And then moments like this, right? Like this is exactly what you can't do. If you have like commitments and responsibilities, you can't just go gallivanting off to the forest perilous because it sounds like fun. Um, uh, 
you know, it's that this is ex- all of the complications, all of the questionable decisions that Tristram is making. These are all the things that Sir Lancelot is saying, look, I'm, I, I want nothing to do with any of this. I'm going to stay out of this entirely. Just have me and, you know, my lady, the queen, whom I serve loyally and faithfully and non-carnally, right, with my pure love uh, for her and everything's fine. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Karina says she thinks it's what annoys, uh, Karina, I kept thinking of you, you know, reviewing stuff. I'm like, boy, (laughs) Sir Tristram is not going to be going up in Karina's opinion in today's reading. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, 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 I totally hear you on this, Karina. And, and, you know, she says the thing that annoys me about him um, is not the whole, you know, wife or no thing. It's the lack of commitment. Either be all in on the lady love or be married. He just kind of flails around. I agree. And Lancelot agrees, right? Lancelot and Guinevere disapprove. Guinevere sort of charitably believes that he was probably ensorcelled uh, by Isode LeBlanche minds. But Lancelot is, uh, you know, does not approve. Um yeah, it's um, it's not. Um, he is not a great performer here. Um, one of the thing I wanted to mention, and uh, Lynn had been observing this, and I think this is a really great point. That to notice the the letters that La Belle Isode, uh sends, right? Piteous letters, as could be thought and mad. The addition thought. Listing both Thocht and Mad uh, is interesting, right? Like, as piteous as any letters that could be either thought or made. So made means actually written, right? So, because there's a difference between being able to think up something that you want to say in a letter and actually making the letter. Like, again, if you're not literate, right? Um, um, yeah, Um but her letters are as piteous as any letter that was ever made or any ever letter that was ever thought, right? But those are clearly not the same thing. Um, yeah. Um, by the way, there's a brief reference later in today's reading, but I don't think it's in any of the slides. Um, Tristram gets a letter and reads it. Immediately, Tristram is obviously li- literate. But again, remember, Tristram wrote the book on hunting, right? Tristram is, it's one of the ways in which, remember, uh, remember all that book learning that he got, all that education uh, that Tristram got, which is clearly in large part gentleman's education, like about hunting, um, which is one of the things that's emphasized. But but he clearly got some book learning, like he made stuff up and he wrote the book. And uh, so uh, Tristram is clearly literate. You know, he's a, uh, an intellectual Sir Tristram is, uh, and a harpist, and all that kind of thing. Um, exactly, hawker, harper, hunter, letter writer. Uh, he's got a long, uh, a long, a long, a long resume. And give Karina five minutes, and she'll add a whole bunch of other things to his resume too. Anyway, all right, let's keep going. Look, a cameo appearance by the Questing Beast. Uh, we got a lot of good cameo appearances in today's reading. And this, meanwhile, comes Sir Palamides, the good Knecht, following the quest. This is, uh, uh, this, meanwhile, by the way, is when Tristram is riding with Sir Lamorak, with whom he had that bizarre exchange, which 
makes me feel like I'm having a kind of out of body experience when I'm reading it because he meets with Lamarack, which looks like after he gets shipwrecked and then meets with Lamarack, which is almost exactly the circumstances under which he met Lamarack before. And then Tristram immediately starts talking to him like he's never seen him since the whole chastity horn business uh, in Cornwall. And but then Lamarack is like, dude, we've done this already, right? Why are we doing this again? And Tristram's like, I don't care. We're doing this again. And then they make up in their BFFs again, right? And Lamarack is like, it's fine. You know, we're good. Um, but anyway, it was uh, it was it, it was a little bit weird. So, anyway, so it's 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 Tristram and Lamarack, number two and number three knights in the land who are riding together when Sir Palamides, number four knight in the land, comes in. Um. Okay, so, uh, and this meanwhile, come Sir Palamides, the good knight, following the questing beast that had in shop like a serpentist head and a body like a libid, buttocked like a lion. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> I don't suggest you try that as a compliment. <laughs> God, uh, uh, never mind. <clears throat> and footed like an heart. And in his body there was such a noise as it had been twenty couple of hounds questing, and such noise that beast mad wheresomever he went. And this beast evermore Sir Palamides followed, for it was called his quest. And right so as he followed this beast, it come by Sir Tristram, and soon after come Sir Palamides. And to breath this matter, he smote down Sir Tristram and Sir Lamarack, both with own spear. And so he departed after the beast Glatisount, that was called the questing beast. Wherefore, these connectives were passing wroth that Sir Palamides would not fight with him on foot. But of course he can't. He's got to go catch up with the questing beast. Here... Men may understand. I love this narrative, this this aside from Maori, right? Here men may understand that been men of worship, that man was never formed that all time is mixed a time, but some time he was put to the worse by malfortune, and at some time the wiker knicked put the bigger knicked to a rebuke. It happens, man, right? These people aren't machines. So... Like, are you going to object, reader, fair reader? Were you about to object? Like, hang on a second. How is it possible that Sir Palamides, whom we've seen Sir Tristram handle on several occasions already, right? Um, how is it that Sir Palamides takes out Tristram and Lamarack both with one spear? Like, and, and he's like, hey, dude, like, it happens, right? Any given Sunday, man, like, Sir Palamides could do this. Um so, um, there it is. There it is. Um, dollar stroke. That is a really good observation. Um, yes. Sir Tristram gets really wroth when he gets beaten. Um, Sir Tristram does not like that one bit. Um, and I don't know that he is, foremost in that characteristic there are others who are not such great losers either um but it is certainly a noteworthy element of uh of sir tristram's character yeah um yeah david i agree david uh uh Urbach is uh saying he's imagining a medieval monk uh 
illustrating the buttocks like a lion uh, uh, passage. Yeah, exactly. Um, the questing beast, I got nothing on the questing beast, man. The questing beast is just weird, and I think that's his point. Um, the questing beast is a marvel. And we're never going to get any story of the questing. Like, we're not going to get the questing beast's backstory. Where did he come from? Why is he there? What does he do? What is his role in the ecosystem? We have no idea what on earth this questing beast is. Um, it's extremely weird. It's got um, a, a head shaped like a snake's head, a body like a leopard's body, the butt of a lion, and the feet of a deer, of all things. Um, yeah, yeah, libid does mean leopard. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so he's got... I, I, and then he's got the whole uh, questing, you know, the, 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 the questing hound sound that comes out of his chest. Um, and... Uh, he just keeps, this is the second time now he has just like entered from stage left and proceeded straight across and exited stage right of the narrative. And the only connection that he has had with the narrative is that a pretty prominent knight is like the dude who is dedicated to following him, right? So King Pelinor, you know, has retired from the questing beast business. Well, I think he was retired by Sir Gawain and his brothers. Uh, but he is uh, a, the, now Sir Palamides. And how did Sir Palamides take over the questing beast biz from King Pelinor? No idea. And we're never told. Right. So um, I don't really <laughs> understand. Um, yeah. Dollar Stork, I agree. It does sound like a pretty dysfunctional and not very scary chimera. Yeah, I, I agree. But at the same time, it's almost, almost allegorical. Like, it kind of half-heartedly sends up, like, an allegory warning flag, right? But not quite. It's still hard to do anything with it. I mean... He's like very vaguely similar to, you know, the description of the beast from the sea in the book of Revelation, you know, but not quite and really not very much uh, with some very significant differences. So um, and is he evil? We don't really know. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Brianna, I don't think the sex of the questing beast is ever mentioned. Um, I have big memories that T.H. White made the questing beast female, but um, uh, I don't think we get that much information. I mean, uh, the you know, in his body, um, you know, wherever he went, we are getting masculine pronouns. But as we will see later in this very class, if I get that far... Um, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. So, um, yeah. Um, so yeah, Sharon, are the bits and pieces of the beast symbolically significant? Yeah, that's my problem. Like some, but not that many. So like, okay, I think I could deal with a beast that had the hinder parts of the lion and the four front parts of a serpent, right? In fact, snake, like 
serpents and uh, serpents and, and and lions are like dragons and lions. Um, those are not only like comprehensible from a uh, from a symbolic standpoint, but kind of standard actually. In fact, there one of the French books that uh, Maori is talking about uh, involves a. a Story, uh, uh, Sir uh, Sir Yvain, the Knight of the Lion. This is, by the way, uh, good old Sir Uwain, the uh, unfortunate son of Morgan Le Fay uh, that we met briefly earlier on. Um, uh, anyway, his French uh, source story, uh, Yvain or the Knight of the Lion, uh, involves a you know so the the sort of titular moment right in that story is when Yvain finds a lion and a serpent like a, a lion and a dragon fighting each other and he has to decide like what's he going to do like you know he could help the lion he could help the snake I guess he could sit back and like eat popcorn but he uh, he, he could put it on pay-per-view lots of options but instead he helps the lion and he slays the serpent and it's obvious like it could not be more obvious, symbolically speaking, that he has made the right choice, right? You slay the serpent and you save the lion and the lion is super grateful and they become BFFs and the lion follows him around and like saves his life on lots of future occasions and it's totally awesome. Um, uh, so yeah, 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 Karita, knight with pet lion, right? It's awesome. Um, just as cool as it sounds. So anyhow, um, so again, if we had serpent and lion... And that was it. I, I, I could I could do something with that. The combination, weird in lots of ways, right? But but we could make that work. Body of the leopard, I have no idea what to do with the body of the leopard. Feet of the heart. Uh, I mean, again, you can do some stuff with the feet of the heart. Um, that's very Book of Psalms. But boy, does that push us in totally different, you know, directions uh, from, uh, you know the serpent and the lion thing. And then the body of the leopard, I have no idea what to do symbolically with the leopard. Uh, and, and then, but, but none of that is as significant. It would seem, I mean, he's called the questing beast here, he or she, Brianna, right. is called the questing beast because of the sound, right. The sound of the hounds, uh, you know, so what exactly is that about? I don't really know. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I was just reading. Um, uh, yeah, brilliant. Brilliant, Veronica. I love that. Veronica says, she Googled it. Google says that this is a medieval variation of the giraffe. Yeah, yeah. No, brilliant, Google. That's just right. Obviously, it's a giraffe. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly. Uh <laughs> Uh, you know that reminds me of Veronica. It reminds me of the. Uh, I remember the first time I read the Book of Job, and the awesome description of the uh, of the Leviathan. Right? Oh man! Like the long description of Leviathan and how huge and awesome Leviathan is. Now you mistake him for an island, and yeah, anyway, I mean it's awesome, right? I mean, he's this huge, enormous sea beast, and it's incredible. Um, but the, the Bible that I was reading had a footnote under Leviathan, right? You get a footnote, you follow the footnote down to the bottom, and it says, 
or maybe crocodile. <laughs> it's like, yeah, alt- maybe alternatively, maybe crocodile is what they were going for there. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, that's probably what that's because a crocodile fits almost all of those descriptions. I'm sure they were, I'm sure that's what they were reaching for. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, that, never mind. <laughs> I, won't, I won't even go there. I won't even go there. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of fun. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't really... I don't know what to do with it. But not only do I not know what to do with the questing beast, I feel small... I, I, I feel very little inclination to attempt it, right? Because... You know, you remember I talked a lot earlier on about like things that Mallory is interested in or like things this narrative appears to be interested in and things not. Um, and... I do not feel very firmly invited to think about the questing beast in great detail, right? Uh, the role that the questing beast seems to play in this story, even the reason he's described in detail is because it's awesome, right? Because it's weird, because it's a marvel. Like, wow, would you look at that? This is, there are really strange adventures in this forest, right? Look at that thing, right? Have you ever seen anything like that? I've never seen anything like that, right? Um, uh, not even in the savannah. So, um, anyway, yeah, it, it's it's uh, that that seems because this is part of the you know seeing marvels is a goal. I mean, it's one of the things, right? <laughs> exactly, Bruce. So now we can eat breakfast. That's exactly it, right? Um, you want to see uh, a, a marvel before you sit down to eat, right? And so here you go. You've you've been given one, um, and Mallory seems perfectly content. To leave it at that. Um, in a sense, you could almost... The Questing Beast, actually, to return to the very first topic I was talking about tonight, is another one of those moments that makes me pause before condemning Maori for bad storytelling with the whole vengeance of Sir Lakot Maltile thing, right? Um, because, again, like this is another classic example, right? Like You don't do this kind of thing uh, in a story and then have it go nowhere. Right. I mean, come on, like what modern editor, right. I mean, if you wrote a novel and you had this, something like this happen, like, come on, you know, your editor would be itching to cut that out. Right. You know, they'd be like, what, this goes nowhere. Like remove this. Um, Mallory, obviously wholly untroubled by it. And because it's less sort of narratively pivotal, uh, right, like the beginning and the end of the story, and and we don't get any kind of toss-off line, you know, like we do at the end of the story of Sir Lakot Maltau. Um, it doesn't jump out at us quite as much, right? But it is every bit; it shows every bit as much of a complete, uh, I don't know, complacency in not resolving things, right? Um, it becomes clear this is part, not I think, just one of Mallory's failings. But arguably, part of his, uh, um, part of his method, right? Um, you know, and he's he's comfortable with this method, um, uh, even if we're not. Um, yeah. 
Now, don't want to stroke. I don't. I don't see it as world building in the same way that Tolkien will. Well, I mean, let me come about this differently. Uh, Dora Stroke is suggesting, you know, it could be you know, ways in which, like, Tolkien brings up something which obviously has a backstory, and he hints at the backstory, but he doesn't really tell the whole story. So he leaves, you know, all these untold stories that we can see throughout Tolkien's work. You could say that it's kind of like that, and it ha- in some ways it kind of has that sort of effect, except. Mallory doesn't really seem interested in those things, and he doesn't hint as... Like, we get no hint about the... You know, yes, The Questing Beast is an untold story, but he's an untold story in the sense that it's a complete cipher, right? Uh, And no one is even... No one in the the narrative is even curious about the backstory, whereas, again, that's not true. We'll still get the hobbits wondering about the backstory, which we will never learn, right? So we get Mary looking at the Pukul men and thinking about the Pukul men and who carved them and why, and right? So even though though we're not going to answer the questions, he's still going to ask the questions, right? Or prompt us to ask the questions. Now, not so much, right? He's just like, whoa, look at this. Isn't that weird? Dude, I thought that was weird too. Anyway, moving on. Um, back to nightly combat. Um, uh, so anyhow, yeah, that's, uh, um, that's how I, that's how I, that's how I take that. Um, but I would say, Dora Stroke, that I do think that this kind of thing does influence Tolkien, actually. I think that, uh, Tolkien's, penchant for untold stories in this way he does get from uh, this is part of his inheritance from medieval literature this the lack of the impulse or the um, the the much weaker impulse to feel like everything has to be ex- to- told out and tied together and obviously a part of this story or else it needs to be cut obviously that's not part of Tolkien's narrative uh, approach, right? And I do think that that element of his narrative approach is, at least in part, informed by uh, medieval stuff, not just Mallory, but others as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, okay. <laughs> Keep going. All right. Oh, man. Okay, now this is a really interesting passage. Um, You'll remember that Sir Lamorak was hanging out in a chapel, resting, because, you know, in his journey, he happened across a chapel in the woods, like you do. And he was resting there, which is a fine idea. But, unfortunately, Sir Meliagons was pouring out his heart in prayer nearby. Which you do aloud, by the way. We don't do silent much. Uh, uh, people tend to t- think and pray aloud. Pray, definitely. Um, uh, but uh, uh, even often think aloud. Um, and not just for the sake of narrative convenience. Uh, that's a, that's a, that's a known thing. Um, anyway, so here he is. Um, uh, talking about his love for Queen Guinevere, his scandalous love for Queen Guinevere. Overheard. Right. And then Sir Lamarack meets him later on. So Sir Lamarack departed for them, and within a while he met with Sir Meliagans. 
and found Sir Lamorak asked him why he loved Queen Guinevere as he did. For I was not far from you when you mod your complaint by the chapel. Did ye so, sighed Sir Meliagance. Then will I abide by it. I love Queen Guinevere. Sir Meliagance is coming out of the closet, right? He's going to declare to the world his love for Queen Guinevere. What will ye with it? Now, that's an. In- this is a question from. Uh, now, so no, remember, by the way, paragraph structure and quotation marks are editorial, right? So I would actually be a little bit tempted to read this as Sir Meliagance saying, I love Queen Guinevere. What will ye with it, right? What are you going to do about it? But I, I think it's clearly Lamarack who is saying this. Um, because I will prave and make it good that she is the firest Lottie and the most of beauty in the world. It is possible that that, isn't, that one entire thing is Sir Meliagance's statement. Then will I abide by it. I love Queen Guinevere. What will ye with it? I will prave and make it good that she is the firest Lottie and most of beauty in the world. I think that that's, it's possible that that's all Sir Meliagance. However, um, I think that uh, Vinover's reading here is very plausible. In fact, I incline towards it. I, I, I think Vinover is right here that this is Lamarack's interjection, um, because it do, to me it does kind of um, make it um, make Lamarack's response make more sense. Right? He says, "I love Queen Guinevere." Lamarack says, "What woe ye with it? What are your intentions? You love Queen Guinevere. What are your intentions?" He says. And Meliagans' response is, I intend to make it good to prove that she is the fairest lady and most abused in the world. I'm going to fight on her cause, right? To which Lamarack says, as to that, which is what leads me to think that it was Lamarack who said, what will ye with it? Because he's responding to the, as if that is the answer. So he said, as to that, okay, if that's your answer to my question, what are you going to do with it, right? Or what are your intentions? Uh... Then I have a response, right? As to that, sighed Sir Lamorak, I say nigh thereto, for Queen Morgaus of Orkney motor unto Sir Gawain, for she is the fierest laddie that beareth the life. And so here Sir Lamorak comes out of the closet, right? His, his love is revealed. He is in love with Sir Gawain's mom, Queen Morgaz of Orkney, King Arthur's older sister. Don't ask any questions. Um, that is not so, said Sir Meliagance. That is, it is not so that she is the fairest lady that beareth a life. Uh, and that wold I prave with my hondes. Will ye so, said Sir Lamarack, and in a better quarrel keep I not to fight. Okay, um, <laughs> yeah, Druid's Fire says this Venn diagram is very strange. Druid's Fire, also remember, it was Sir Gawain and his brothers, so it was the, a passel of the sons of Queen Morgaz who killed Lamorak's father, King Pelinor. I mean, like, all I have to say is Freud would have a field day 
with the families of King Pelinor and King Lot. Okay, like oh my goodness, they need the lot of the bunch of them need so much therapy. It's not even funny. But anyhow, um, and yeah, absolutely. Those of you who are remembering uh, Gimli and Aemir, um, yes, I have always loved that moment uh, in the Return of the King. Um, and uh, what I love about it is the ominousness of it, right? The ominousness of Aemir. Aemir is, he's not exactly Sir Lancelot, but, you know, so like the head vassal of the king who is going to fight to defend the, 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 uh, proposition that the queen, his king's wife, is the most beautiful lady in the land. Like, there's there's an ominous moment there when Aemir says that to Gimli, right? Um, uh, but of course, both of them immediately backing down, uh, both Aemir and Gimli in The Return of the King immediately backing down, right? Uh, sort of shows neither one of them are in this world, right? Uh, we almost get there. We get this uh, very clear recollection of this world um, in that lovely moment. It's one of the most purely Mallory moments in all of Tolkien, um, even in the fall of Arthur, frankly. Um, uh, but then, of course, like everything is fine. So we get this uh, uh, and I've always loved that parallel, like the, the, the Lancelot, Guinevere, Aemir, Arwen parallel that we get there um, uh, because it's like Tolkien sort of recalls it, right? But it's it doesn't lead to the fall uh, of uh, of of the court, right? It's all it's all good. It's all fine. Um, anyway, okay. So Lamorak is in love with Morgoth, and they're going to fight about it. Whose lady is the most beautiful? So, a couple things to keep in mind. First, do not forget Sir Meliagance. Sir Meliagance is going to be a very very important character later in the story. A very important foil to Lancelot, of course, as the one who loves Guinevere. And Lamarack's question here, which I, as I say, after calling it into question, do believe to be uh, a question of Lamarack's, what will ye with it, um, is a big question. That is a question that is going to resound through the latter portions of this story, right? Um, what will ye with it? Okay, you say you love Queen Guinevere. What does that mean exactly? What are your intentions? And Meliagant's note starts off constructively, or at least uh, without damage, at least innocently. Well, innocently is not the right word either. either. Um, uh, I can't think of the right word. Harmlessly. That's the word I meant. Harmlessly. Um, his answer is a harmless answer. I'm going to make it good. I will fight anybody who does not agree that she's the most beautiful lady in the world. You know what? Okay, that's fine. Right? Apart from the fact that he's going to personally disagree with him about that particular claim uh, on behalf of Queen Morga- uh, Morgaz of Orkney. However, um, if that is what Meliagance wills with his love for Queen Guinevere, everything's fine. No problems. Unless he runs mad because of it, right? In which case, it's not good for him. But, you know, fine in the big picture. 
of course, this question, what will ye with it? What will ye with it? Is going to come back on Sir Lancelot later on. So far, Sir Lancelot has given an equally harmless answer to that question, right? So long as his answer to that question should continue to be harmless, everything will be fine, right? And we should be remembering that when we get this here, especially when Lancelot himself comes busting in, right? Um, Lancelot finds Sir Meliagance and Sir Lamorak fighting each other very seriously, right? This is not just a, hey, want to spar? Let's spar. They're going at it like they mean it, right? And Lancelot intervenes. Ah, sighed Sir Lancelot. Sir Lamorak. Uh, so, uh, yeah, sorry. I'm jumping later in. So he parts them and he's like, dudes, why are you guys fighting? You're both of the same court. You should be on the same side. What's going on here? And Lamarack explains, right? Well, it's because he said that Guinevere is the most beautiful woman in the world, and I totally said Morgaz is the most beautiful woman in the world. That's why we're fighting. And Lancelot immediately loses it, right? Ah, sighed Sir Lancelot. Sir Lamarack, why sayst thou so? It is not thy part to disprise thy princess that thou art under obeisance, and we all? And therewithal Sir Lancelot alicht on foot, and therefore mock thee ready, for I will prove upon thee that Queen Guinevere is the firest laddie and most of bounty in the world. Sir, said Sir Lamorak, I am loath to have ado with you in this quarrel, for every man thinketh his own laddie firest, and though I prize the laddie that I love most, ye shall not be wroth. For though my laddie, Queen Guinevere, be firest in your eye, wit you well, Queen Morgals of Orkney is firest in mine eye, and so every knight thinketh his own laddie firest. And wit you well, sir, ye are the man in the world except Sir Tristramus that I am most loathest to have ado with all, and ye... and ye will needs have ado with me, ye sh- I shall endure you as long as I may. Then spoke Sir Bleoberus, and said, so here's Lamorak's kinsman who came with him, right? So Sir Bleoberus says, My lord, Sir Launcelot, I wist you never so misadvised as ye be at this time, for Sir Lamorak saith to you but reason and knickly, and I warn you, I have a laddie, and methinketh that she is the fairest laddie of the world. Were this a great reason that ye shall be wroth with me for such language? And well ye wot that Sir Lamorak is a noble knight, as I know any living, and he hath oct you and all us ever good will. Therefore I pray you be friendes. Then Sir Launcelot sighed, Sir, I pray you, forgive me mine offence and evil will, and if I was misadvised, I will make amendus. Sir, said Sir Lamorak, the amendus is so mad betwixt you and me. As, of course, Sir Lamorak always does, right? Um, so, all right. This is, uh, this is really cute. Lamorak talks him down, or attempts to talk him down, Sir Bleoberus then successfully talks about that. I love that. I love... Sir Bleoberus seems to have a sense of humor about this, right? He's like, dude, I gotta tell you, I have a lady and I think she's the fairest lady in the world too. Are you gonna attack me now too, right? Is that what's gonna happen here, cuz? Right? Is that how we're playing this now? Come on, man. What's wrong with you? Um, What's wrong with him, right? This 
On the one hand, this is kind of a small moment, and Lancelot doesn't do anything. He doesn't cross any lines, right? This is not a huge deal. Um, but as I suggest in my subtitle here, I, this is, I think, one of the first cracks we see in Sir Lancelot's perfection, right? Um, and one of the first indicators that his love for Guinevere is going to be trouble, right? Notice, notice the gap. Notice the gap between what they're all doing and talking about and what Sir Lancelot is doing and talking about. So, that is, everybody there, except for Sir Lancelot, acknowledges that what we're talking about here, like, we're all talking about our girlfriends, right? We're all bragging about, like, we all think our girlfriend is the cutest, right? Notice that's not what Lancelot says. Notice his outrage against the the explicit premise of his outrage at Sir Lamorak. Sir Lamorak, why sayest thou so? It is not thy part to despise thy princess, that thou art under obeisance, and we all. He's like, Lamorak, why are you dissing your queen? This is a political thing, right? You owe her obedience as your queen. How? Why would you go around bad-mouthing her, right? Um, the, the use of the word princess, by the way, is important. Um, in, uh, in Middle English, the word prince almost always... It, it, it does not mean the heir of the king. It doesn't mean the son of the king. It means the ruler, like the word. It's from princeps, from the Latin. Um, they so when when somebody talks about a prince, they're talking about a sovereign. They're talking about a ruler. Arthur is the prince, right? There is no prince, of course. He doesn't have a son. He doesn't have an heir. Um, but Arthur is a prince. So when he calls Guinevere a princess, he is referring to her not just as not just as queen, but as ruler, right? She is the one that you owe political authority to, okay? Is the emphasis, I think, in his choosing the word princess, to say, of Guinevere here. Um, princess, that thou art under obeisance, right? That's, that's how that all, that all fits together. Notice how Sir Lamorak and Sir Bleoberus have to kind of bring him down from that. It's like, dude... Nobody's making political statements here. This wasn't about politics. This is about our girlfriends, right? Lancelot, you're talking about your girlfriend too, right? So here you were coming in, right? Being like, hey, guys, knock it off. Don't do this. And then you're immediately going to do it yourself. You're going to participate in the fight that you came in to, bro- to break up. That kind of inconsistency in Lancelot's character is a big red flag, Right? Lancelot doesn't do that kind of thing, right? He knows what's right, and he sticks to it. We've always seen him do that in here. He's lost his head. And Sir Bleoberus calls him on it, right? I wist you never so misadvised as ye be at this time, right? He's like, look, you are, you're in the wrong here, buddy. Like, you are out of line, is what he's saying to, to Lancelot, right? He's like, I have never seen you this out of line before, right? Um... Like, you're just, you're, you're in completely the wrong place here, Lancelot. And part of the thing I think that we see here, 
Lancelot is talking one talk, but his walk isn't matching it, right? He is reacting. He is acting like another one of these boyfriends who's sticking up for his girlfriend. It is not political why he's objecting to what Lamarack is saying. He says that, but I don't believe it. And it doesn't seem that Lamarack and Bleobaris believe him either, right? They're like, we all think our girlfriends are the cutest, right? So sue us, right? That's how it works, man. We get that it's the same for you, right? They are understanding. They're being like, yeah, you know, Lancelot, we get it. It's the same with you and Guinevere, right? See what I'm, the crack that I'm pointing to here? Lancelot doesn't think that his relationship with Guinevere is the same as Meliagance's relationship with Guinevere, right? It's different. It's different. It's just, you know, political. And, you know, I admire her and stuff. I will defend her. I will fight for her as my princess and and everything, right? Um, but, uh, no. In fact, his relationship with Guinevere at this point is exactly identical. Exactly identical. Like, he is literally stepping into Sir Meliagance's place as the defender of Guinevere's beauty uh, against um, Sir Lamarack, right? Um, He's in exactly the position. So, like, Sir Meliagance Lancelot right there, he's you, right? You don't think he's you. You think you're different from him. You think your relationship with Guinevere is different from his relationship with Guinevere. But your actions show it's not. And that might be a troubling thought later on, right? Um, that is, uh, again, the f- uh, a small crack in Lancelot's um, foundation here, right? Um, a little piece of evidence that there is potentially a problem that could be growing, that thing that it's not okay. Um, and we will see. Spoiler, Meliagance is not going to be a great exemplar of uh, appropriate love. Um, this parallel with Sir Meliagance is going to come turn out to be super awkward later on. Okay. Soon after this, we get a King Arthur cameo. Bet you forgot he existed, right? But there he is. Now shall ye hear what was the cows that King Arthur come into the Forest Perilous. Like, they meet, you know, uh, they, you know. remember he, he meets with a couple knights and it's like, and oh my gosh, it's King Arthur. Um, uh, okay, so he come into the Forest Perilous. That was in North Wallace. <laughs> Can I just emphasize? <laughs> Sir Tristram must be the worst <laughs> Ever, ever. I mean, ever. It's one thing. It's one thing to cross the channel from Brittany to England and, and you know, to try to get to Cornwall from Brittany, which is right across the channel, right? And shipwreck. Like, that could happen to anybody, right? But, but to fetch up in North Wales... I mean, North Wales. He went all the way around Wales through the Irish Channel. Uh, you know, 
It's like he was it had to have been at sea for like five or six times as long, at least, as he was meant to. But, you know, it's all, it's all good. You're right, Karina. If we assume there's a minor sea deity who's messing with him, it all makes sense. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Nancy, I didn't notice that either until this moment. I Like, that totally passed me, the forest perilous that was in North Wallace. Anyway, okay, sorry. Now shall ye hear what was the cows that King Arthur come into the forest perilous that was in North Wallace by the means of a laddie. Her nam was Aunur, and this laddie come to King Arthur at Cardiff. And she, by fire promises and fire behestes, mad King Arthur to ride with her into that forest perilous. Because what could happen? And she was a great sorceress. Oh, oh, wait, that's what could happen. And money dies, she had loved King Arthur. And because she would have had him to lie by her, she come into that country. <sighs> Never mind. So when the king was gone with her, money of his connectors follow it after him, when they missed him as Sir Lancelot, Sir Brandilus, and many other. So he just goes AWOL from the court, right? This damsel comes and is like, come with me to the Forest Perilous for reasons. And he's like, okay, that sounds good. And then they get there and she's like, now sleep with me. And he's like, oh gosh, that's awkward. Um, it could be Kitchen, I agree. Cardiff is in South Wales. So it makes sense that Arthur would get to the Forest Perilous in North Wales overland. And it takes him a while to get there, right? And he goes missing and they're all hunting for him and stuff. So that, that's fine. That makes sense, Kitchen. It's the sea voyage that uh, that perplexes me. Um But anyway, okay, yeah. So um I agree, Nancy. Arthur really does need to be more careful about this kind of thing. Um Okay, so Karina, this is what I was trying not to talk about, but you're right, it's worth talking about anyway. So Karina says, I have questions. Like, does she just want to have sex with him because she's into him? Or for the bragging rights of betting a king? Or for getting an Arthur baby out of the deal? Karina, I have no idea what she's looking for here. Um, You could read it as just another example of like the courtly love thing, which could go in a couple ways, right? That is, she might have just fallen desperately in love with him and she just wants him. That could be. It could be that she wants him for status purposes, right? Like the four queen sorceresses wanted Lancelot, right? For bragging rights. It could just be that, right? Um, it, as you suggest, it, the, the procreation, quite possible, right? Especially because she's a sorceress. So who knows? Um, one thing... Um, um, and I was reminded of this earlier. On. I'm sorry, I've forgotten which one of you was talking about this. Uh, one of you was making a comment earlier about Dame uh, Brungwina uh, and pointing out how incredibly well-traveled she is. Dame Brungwina goes everywhere, right? She's um, she's like logged more miles than pretty much any other woman uh, in this story, um, and, which is true. She's a really interesting kind of minor character and does a lot of d- d- does a lot of traveling about. Um, on the subject of that and of this um, uh, uh, sort of unknown uh, sorceress, Aunora, um, one of the things that really struck me in this whole narrative section 
And notice that there are women everywhere, right? Maori has no lack of female characters. You have to admit that. There are women everywhere in this text. And what's more, don't you get this sense, or rather maybe to be a little bit more tentative about it, think of how easy it would be to imagine this whole... You could totally do, and by the way, Please note, I'm not talking about Marion Zimmer Bradley here. You could easily write, rewrite a version of Maori's Lamorte d'Arthur from the point of view of the, like, massive and highly organized and highly detailed and eventful feminine society, which is clearly operating um, not even beneath, but like around and through and above often uh, the, the, the purely mask, the more purely masculine stories that uh, Mallory focuses on. But don't you get this sense that the women are like they have a, there's obviously like there's a whole like a, 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 um, boy, I'm not doing well with words here. Tonight. It's like really simple words that I'm, uh, uh, that I'm, that I'm, that I'm losing. It's like a whole labor union, right. Of, um, of, of women who sit by wells and what do they do? They coordinate adventures, right? Like they're in charge of things, right? They've got a, they've got a, they've got, you know, like a priority list and they're, they're seeking out qualified people. You've got women running throughout the land seeking uh, Lancelot and Tristram in order to entice them in and destroy them, right? Sent by Morgan Le Fay. But then you've got other women. You've got the Lady of the Lake out there trying to thwart the plots of the other women. And the men are just like wandering through all of these like totally unknown, uh, uh, unknown feminine plots, right? I mean, it's, I've never got, you know, in no other section of Mallory do you get that clear sense of like, okay, the ladies in this world are super busy. Maori just doesn't know what they're doing. So he's not telling us, right? But he's aware of the fact that they're actually, if not in fact in charge of things, they are doing lots and lots of stuff. And so he acknowledges that they have their own storylines, but he's not even going to try, right? Um, it's, it's, yeah, I don't, um, I don't really... Uh, I don't really know, but it would be a fun story to write. And again, I know that, you know, when you talk about like telling the Arthurian story from the point of view of the women who are usually thrust to the side of the narrative, everybody thinks of, you know, the mists of Avalon, but that's not what I mean. That's, uh, you know, what, uh, Bradley does in that story. Um, you know, the, the sort of particular, uh, ways in which she, you know, is, is retelling the story to, to uh, suit the very different story that she wants to tell is not what I mean. Yeah, I mean, of course you can do that. But um, but again, what I think is fascinating is trying to put together to sort of pursue all of these vague hints that he gives us about what these women are up to. Um, yeah. Yeah. Karita, oh, I agree. Uh, the lady's point of view on the Chastity Horn episode, like, you've got to know that there's stuff going on in the background, right? Like, that's not over. Like, the men kind of drop it, right? But you've got, you, 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 that can't be over, right? Think of the letters that must have been going, ba- you know, ba- back and forth between La Belle Zode and Queen Guinevere about that, right? Um, and like, the, and you, you, like, and they, Morgan Le Fay, right? You've got, you know, King Arthur is helpless when it comes to Morgan Le Fay. He can't do anything about Morgan Le Fay, right? But we know that the 
the the lady of the lake at least is actively working against her, right? Anyway, it's um yeah, Tarlonio, you're absolutely right. All the students in those in those negromancy nunneries must be going out and doing something with their education. Yeah, I mean, think about this. The, uh, you can imagine these whole like different uh, schools, like the nunnery schools, right? You got the good ones and the bad ones. Um, but uh, <laughs> yes, and, and Karita, I I do agree with you. Um, you would think that. Uh, it's like, okay, King Arthur, like, life tip, right? If a strange lady invites you to go to the Forest Perilous with her, like, it, she might be up to no good, right? That that might not end well, right? There is a little hint, I agree, Karita, kind of inherent in that. Now, presumably, you know, the way she appealed to him, right, is that, you know, he could do something to, like, protect her, do some good for her, right? You know, I'm sure he knew about the peril, right, before he got into this. He just didn't realize what kind of peril he was going to be facing. Um, But, Karita, to get back to your original question... Sorry. I was just about to utter a sentence, which was going to sound kind of funny. Um, But I'll say it anyway. Sex is clearly important. (laughs) But I don't mean that in a modern sense. I mean, uh, it's the number of times that, like, whether... Whether one person will sleep with another person is the culminating issue in a a significant percentage of adventures, right? And you'll notice how comparatively rarely masculine desire is involved. In fact, if anything, it goes counter to masculine desire. Think of the number of times, the really quite improbable number of times... All of these Arthurian knights are finding themselves again and again, again and again in the position of being trapped by, you know, often extremely attractive women who are saying, now you must sleep with me. And the knights being like, oh, no, 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 I really shouldn't do that. Right. Um, That happens. A lot. A lot. Um in these stories. It's a major factor. And I'm I'm not sure I fully understand what's at stake there. I'm I'm not sure I get it. We can look at it from like a courtly love perspective, but that doesn't seem to satisfy it. Um, I don't really... I'm I'm not sure that I understand what the problem... This is going to become a major issue when we get to the quest for the Holy Grail. But when we get to the quest for the Holy Grail, it's going to begin to resolve into a clearer pattern. And the the pattern that it's going to resolve itself into, and this is not much of a spoiler because it's going to be very prominent and very frequently repeated from very early on in that narrative... The emphasis is on virginity and the importance of virginity, even the spiritual power of virginity. 
Um, so not having sex simply as a, like the, the not having sex is what's important. Like with anybody under any circumstances, like even marriage itself is not as good. Um, so it's not about sexual virtue per se, because uh, like having sex with your spouse, like again, what Tristram does with Isolde Leblanchemans is actually unchaste. Like you're supposed to have sex with your wife. That's like your job, in fact. So it's part of chastity to do that. Um, it's in the Bible for crying out loud. Um, uh, seriously, I'm not making this up. First Corinthians chapter seven, read it if you've never have. But, um, Anyway, so it's going to resolve itself into a clear pattern, which is just a pro-virginity pattern, right? But um, we don't see that here. Like We have no cue for that yet. That does not really seem to be the pattern, and I don't really understand what it is. Um, Veronica, I do think it's in—I mean— Thinking about pregnancy um, as a factor, Veronica's thinking of the possibility of a, like pregnancy as like a, a way for women to entrap men. They're, they are literally entrapping them a lot of the time, right? Like Lancelot and Arthur and and Tristram's dad and Tristram himself. And I mean, think of the number of men who have been in this position of of fending off the unwanted advances of women. In fact. The, like the the attempted like reverse rapes of men by women essentially um, uh, outnumber the rapes of women by men in this story, don't they? I mean, I think they have to by this point. Um, but anyway, whatever. Um, my my hesitation about pregnancy, Veronica. Nobody ever talks about that. We has anyone talked about procreation? Like, has that even come up idly, even when it's important? Like, nobody has mentioned the fact that Arthur has no heir, right? That Guinevere has not yet... Nobody in the court is looking around saying, uh, is Guinevere barren or what? Where are the the heirs? Why is that not happening? Nobody, nobody ever talks about that. Um... Yeah. You're right, Jennifer. We do get, we have gotten a few random illegitimate children, like Sir Tor, of course. Uh, who else? We, we, have, we, we get generations, right? I mean, like we just met Sir Gawain's son in today's reading. Um, so, like, people are procre and Mordred, of course. Yeah, right. Uh, another important illegitimate child. Um, Veronica, it was Morgoz who got uh, Mordred from Arthur. Um, so that, which is why Mordred is Gawain's half-brother. So he's one of the Orkney lot. Uh, uh, um, Mordred is. Um, but, um, yeah, anyway, I, so I, it, uh, is it possible that pregnancy is part of the plan, you know, in some way, or for some reason, even if it's not explained? Like, it could be, but we don't really, um, we don't know. I get nobody ever says it. Nobody ever talks about it. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Um, yeah, Karita, exactly. You would think that somebody 
we we would get a monologue right from some of the these evil sorceresses who would talk about like what they plan to do with like Arthur's illegitimate child or something like that. Um, no, but we we don't get any such speeches, right? We get speeches about like how I'm gonna stuff your body and like continue to sleep with you for years after you're dead, you know, with Lancelot. But we don't get any plans about what what they, you know, hope to do with Lancelot's offspring should they acquire them, right? Um, it's yeah. Um, I don't know. Anyway. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Dolores Stroke. It's very different from. I mean, in the as as you point out, yes, in like the you know Welsh stories, the you know the motivation of getting heirs and things like it comes up a lot, right? It's actually pretty normal to talk about this. And see, I'm not Marilyn. I don't buy that it's a that it's a male centric thing because men are very interested in heirs too. Like that's a that's a masculine issue. Um, uh, I mean, I. <laughs> Women are involved. Don't get me wrong, but I'm, I'm but, but I, I I don't think that it's because it's a male, uh, it's a male oriented narrative, because um, uh, again, m- uh, you know, men would be interested in the offspring question, um, but anyway, um, yeah, um, right, exactly, but not here, man. That's why it seems so weird to me, um, so strange that nobody should talk about that or that even that that's not even put in the mouths of the women anyway whatever um uh okay so Aonora is gonna is gonna kill him did I get all the way through uh, no I didn't okay hang on right he had gone missing I didn't read the third paragraph. And when she had brought him to her tower, she desired him to lie by her and then the king remembered him of his laddie and would not for no craft that she could do. Than every day she would mock him ride into that forest with her own connectus to the intent to have had him slain. For one this laddie Onura saw that she might not have him at her will, then she labored by false means to have destroyed King Arthur and slain him. His reason for not sleeping with her is... Than the king remembered him of his laddie. Remembered him. Did she enchant him? Remember, Guinevere herself said, this is the kind of thing, you've got you've to be ready for this thing, La Belle Isode, right? This happens all the time. Like, prepare yourself for a steady onslaught of sorceresses coming out of the woods, ensorceling your man, and bringing him back to her tower, right? Because this, these, like, these ladies are a dime a dozen. Okay. So, um, you know, all right. Um, and this is, and it happens almost exactly as she describes it happens to her, to her man. Right. And the, the business about remembering is what makes me think that he actually was under some kind of spell. Yeah. Karita, that's how I read it too. Um, Than the king remembered him of his Lottie. Now, I don't think this necessarily means that he was under a spell of forgetting, um, but it's the it's the fun. I I don't know. It's the way that it's. And I wouldn't lean heavily on it, but the way that it's phrased. And then the king remembered him of his lady. 
makes it sound like he was kind of going along with her, like, yes, I will come to the woods with you. That sounds great. Let's go back to your place. Sure, yes, let's do that. And then they get back to her place, and he's like, but wait, I'm married. All of a sudden, I'm now like, hang on a second. What am I doing here? I'm married. It sounds like he's having a, a, a like an epiphany here, right? Like he's having a realization, like he is breaking her spell in some ways. Um <laughs> If you like it, then you should have put a spell on it, says Dolores Stroke. Yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Karina points out that isn't this kind of similar to the lines about Tristram on his wedding night? Yeah, yes, it is kind of similar to that. Um, when Tristram is about to consummate his mic, he and his new wife are naked in bed together, and then he's like, wait a second. Oh, La Belle Zone. Oh, what am I thinking? Right? Yeah, there's a very similar moment that Tristram has. Which means one of two things. Either A, you don't have to be <laughs> ensorcelled. You just have to be a man <laughs> to have moments like this. Right? Maybe it's just a guy thing. Where you are going along, you're like, yes, yes, honey, yes, but wait a second, no, 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 wait, wait, hang on, I now remember I have a wife. That's, you can't rule that out. Or, do you think maybe Guinevere could be right? Maybe, nah, Isolde LeBlanchman Le didn't actually cast a spell on Tristram, right? Probably not. Um, anyway. But it is interesting to me that he's remembering him of his Lottie. <laughs> okay. I'm going out on a limb and saying that I think his Lottie is Guinevere. That's not a guarantee. I mean, she's his wife. But one's wife and one's lady, as we've seen many times before, are not necessarily the same thing, and indeed quite rarely the same thing. Uh, does King Arthur have a lady? Um, on the side that he, you know, would defend and stuff that he's remembering him of? Uh, uh, we don't know. <laughs> no information on that. Uh, I don't really, don't really know. Um, yeah. Um, Curita says, now I really want a novel in which the other Azode is actually the mastermind enchantress who teams up with the minor sea deity. Curita, look, the whole, like, this whole version of the story is unfolding itself before you, right? Uh, I think I, I agree with you, Curita. This totally needs to happen. Um, okay. Fortunately, we've got Sir Tristram to rescue him. And who better to do so? Uh, so, the Lady of the Lake finds Sir Tristram just in time to get him to show up because she's trying to find King Arthur, right? All the other knights are looking for him. Sir Lancelot's looking for King Arthur, but it's the Lady of the Lake who knows where to find him, right? Again, like, the women know what's going on. Uh, the men are just bumbling around. Ah, fire damsel, said Tristramas. May I amend it? Ye, sir, <clears throat> therefore cometh on with me in all haste ye may, for ye shall see the most worshipfulest knight in the world hard bestad. Then sighed Sir Tristramus, I am ready, lo, to help you, and such a noble as ye say he is. 
Sir, it is neither better nor worse, sighed the damsel, but the noble King Arthur himself. God defend, said Sir Tristramus, that ever he shall be in such distress. Then they rode together a great pass until they come to a little turret in a castle, and underneath the castle they saw a knecht standing upon foot, fixing with two knechtes, and so Tr- Sir Tristramus beheld them, and at the last these two knechtes smote down that own knecht, and one of them unlaced his helm, and the, la- and the laddie Aonura got King Arthur sweared in her hand to have stricken off his head. So she's about to decapitate King Arthur with Excalibur. Oh, man. And therewithal, come Sir Tristramas as fast as he meeked, and saying, Traitores, leave that knight alone. And so Sir Tristramas smote the ton of them through the body that he fell dead. And then he rushed to the other and smote his back in sunder. And the meanwhile, the laddie of the lake cried to King Arthur, Let not that false laddie escape! Then King Arthur overtook her, that is not the lady of the lake, but uh, Anura, and with the psalm sweared, he smote off her head. And the laddie of the lock took up her head and hang it at her saddle bow by the hair. And they all lived happily ever after. Okay. Uh, Zach, I agree. Arthur really needs to to keep a better hold on his sword. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah, okay, so the Lady of the Lake is gonna take the Lady Aonora's head as a trophy back with her to Avalon, I guess. Right, where she's neighbors to Sir Gareth, who has settled down and is being... Okay, notice how we haven't seen Sir Gareth, right? Why? Because he's home with his wife, like he's supposed to be, right? He's doing it right. Um, why does she have the head? No clue. Why does she want the head of this woman? Is she going to put it on a spike somewhere? What's going on with this? I don't really know. Um, but uh, mission accomplished for the Lady of the Lake. Um, <laughs> okay. Tristram to the rescue, and it's all good. Mm, okay, we don't have time for Tristram to run mad after all. We talked a little bit about it at the beginning, but we don't get to it. There's a lot of good stuff here. Okay, so we'll get to Tristram running mad. Uh, the next section for you to read is the section on the Castle of Maidens. And I think as far as, far as I recall, that's as far as my schedule went up to. So i got to do the next bits uh, as well for next time. But read about the tournament at the Castle of Maidens. Um um, we're not necessarily going to do a blow-by-blow blow of the whole tournament, though you could do, um, you know, some kind of scorecard or play-by-play play, um, would be um, would be kind of fun to do for this, but uh, but I don't think um, um, uh, we're not going to we're not we're not we're not going to look at it in, in in great detail. What I want you to be thinking of in this description, so the Castle of Maidens is one of the big. Uh, tournaments. You know, this is a major tournament, um, and there are a couple major tournaments. The big tournament at Lona Zepp is going to be another one uh, that we're going to get here in this central section. And my question for you there, as you're reading that, what matters? Don't get lost in all the descriptions of who is unhorsing whom. What is the narrative interested in? What is at stake in this? What is important about this turn? Because it's a obviously a really important moment um, for the characters in this story. This is a big deal, this tournament. 
what do we learn from it? Um, and, uh, um, but then we'll also come back and we'll cover Sir Tristram. So we'll start off with Sir Tristram's madness next time, and then we'll get to the to the tournament. As I said, I don't plan to go in hugely great detail with the tournament, but there will definitely be some things we'll want to look at. And then next time I'll have the continuing schedule uh, posted as we as we move forward. So and the dog, yeah, we'll get to the dog scene, uh, Karita, absolutely. Um, yeah, cool. All right, thanks everybody for joining me. Uh, really fun class tonight. We will be back next week as normal. We'll be here through. When we get to the week of Christmas, uh, we will uh, um, uh, we'll definitely be taking at least one, maybe even two weeks off for the holidays. I'll have to see what my family travel schedule is like. I'm not even sure yet what's going on in, with my family for the holidays. I mean, somebody knows, but it's not me. So, um, so I'll sort that out. But in any case, certainly at least for the next two weeks, we'll be, uh, uh, we'll be, we'll be continuing on. So thanks everybody. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye now.